Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We are in the fifth Sunday of the Epiphany season. And the Epiphany season is all about these revelatory moments of Jesus and uh, where he essentially reveals who he is uh, to the people around him. And so we get to read these stories and think about them in ways that, um, that impact us. Like what is Jesus asking us to see about himself? Uh, what are we asked to uh, uh, do with these stories in our lives? And so I want to read from uh, Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 and then we'll pray and then we'll get into this. So here we go. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, "'Put out into the deep.'" And let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, "Uh, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. Uh, The Greek translation there is actually, stay in your lane, bro. (laughs) But at your word, I will let down my nets. That's so passive aggressive, isn't it? (laughs) Hoping that Jesus fails. That's what he's hoping. And when they had done this, they enclosed... Uh, When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they had left everything and followed him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for this day that we can uh, meet together as a church family. And uh, we pray Uh, For our moments ahead, that you would speak to us words of encouragement, something new, something that we need to be reminded of. And it's in your name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. All right, so I grew up in the the days when bungee jumping was becoming a thing. So this is like in the 80s, and I don't mean like a thing where you have your GoPro and you're taking film of your jump in these beautiful places like Indonesia or South Africa or wherever it is you're bungee jumping. I'm talking about bungee jumping that is sitting, you know, the tower is right next to the putt-putt course, which is right next to the go-kart track, which is right next to the bowling alley. These were all over Panama City, by the way. This is the first place I ever saw one. Uh, Because growing up in the Deep South in the 80s in a youth group, For some reason, every church youth group felt like their spring break trip needed to be in Panama City, which is crazy. I mean, if you watch MTV at all in the 80s, it's like, this is not safe. This is not safe for anybody, much less a youth group. And sure enough, that's the way it was. You know, and our youth pastor would be like, I got us a house. It's right next to Club La Vila. It's going to be a great week. (laughs) And (laughs) so we would go and we would, you know, do the things you do in Panama City when you can't drink and you're locked into a youth group experience. So (laughs) we're just playing putt-putt and trying to see who we can hook up with in the youth group. But that's all we're doing. And But we would go out at night to these places, these like fun parks, and there would just be these bungee jumping 
things happening and it was extraordinary to watch because you're like, we might see someone die right here. <laughs> and they were all the same. At least all, you know, all the people that would do it, the guys, you know, are brave and whatever, but there would always just be this person who wouldn't jump. You know, they've got everything on, and the uh, highly trained counselors at the top, uh, who also work the go-kart tracks at different shifts, uh, are trying to help this person do their first bungee jump. And, you know, you can, and everyone on the ground is like, just jump, you know, just do it. This one place had a sign at the top of the tower, this big banner that just said, shut up and jump. <laughs> And then they would say that, and so then the whole lower, you know, gallery would yell, just shut up and jump, just shut up and jump. Are you with me on this? That's just the way it is. It reminds me of the first time I went rappelling, and it doesn't matter how much data, of safety data they tell you, like, chances are you're not going to fall, you know, you're, you're more unsafe in a car, um, these things always hold, these hold tanks, they lower them out of C-130s and the, you know, the, the war zones, I mean, you're fine, you're not going to break, and you, it doesn't matter that you're hearing all this information, and all of it's true, you know, all of it is absolutely true. When you're just standing there hoping to be able to do this while at the same time wondering if this is going to be the last thing I ever do, it's hard. Faith in doubt. And when I read this story, I knew it was coming up this weekend. I do love this story, this, uh, <laughs> this scene of Jesus in a boat. You know, he just, he just takes Simon's boat. They go out into the water. He's whatever. But let me just set this scene for you, and then, we'll, uh, and then we'll break down this issue of faith and doubt. So the scene is at the, the Lake of Gennesaret, or sometimes it's just called the Sea of Galilee. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. We have one picture, just so you know it's a real place. And uh, Jesus spent a lot of time, obviously, in this region. This is the northwest region of the Galilee. This is where the town of Capernaum is uh, located uh, in the vicinity of this area. And that makes sense because if we back up into the story a little bit, we see that Jesus was in Capernaum at Simon, this owner of the boat, at his house. And his mother-in-law had been sick, and so Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. Very, you know, very sort of, Simon didn't know how to feel about that, you know? Uh, so he heals Simon's mother-in-law uh, of this fever that's just had her bedridden and so on. And so people know about who Jesus is, and uh, so this... Uh, the reason that we have this big crowd at the lake is certainly because Jesus is beginning to perform these uh, wonder-working, miracle sort of things. He's becoming quite famous. I mean, that's what we see in the text in the very first part. I mean, the crowd was just pushing in on him at the lake. And so this is quite simple. Uh, it's simple math. I mean, who doesn't want to come see a person who can heal people? Who doesn't want to come be around someone who can do these sorts of miraculous things. I mean, it's very, very interesting uh, to people. And if you don't know anything about Jesus, you certainly know something of his miracle-working reputation. This is what, these are some things he did. Turn the water into wine, walking on water, healing the blind. I mean, we know these stories. And these stories are not just isolated in the Bible. People knew about these things. Uh, his reputation as a miracle worker uh, was uh, quite well known. Um, there's a Jewish historian who was born just around the time Jesus died, his name is uh, Flavius Josephus, and he was born in the year 37. He became, um, he became a bit of a royal, but a bit of an army general, a bit of a historian, um, 
never became a Christian, but in one of his writings called The Antiquities of the Jews, he wrote this. He says, Now there was about this time a wise man, if it's lawful that he be called a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews as well as many of the Gentiles. He was Christ, as they called him. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold, and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And this tribe called the Christians, so named for him, are not extinct at this day. So very early, even, even just early, in the early years following the life of Jesus, people are still talking about, he's a wonder worker. He did these things, these miracles uh, that drew a lot of attention to, what he, to who he was and the things that he would say. But the interesting thing about Jesus and his miracles is that unlike the other sort of magicians of the day, Jesus didn't do his miracles to exert power or to gain ground with anybody. They weren't these kind of like, hey, look what I can do. Now I have you under my thumb. 99% of the time, the miracles that Jesus performed were to restore someone's life, whether it be their sight or their hearing, the, their social standing, whatever. 99% of the time, the miracles are focused on restoration of life and often done with uh, the postscript. Jesus would say to them, now don't tell anybody that I did this to you. It had no, he had no inclination to draw this crowd based on the things that he could do. But the other 1% of the miracles are these kinds of stories, what we call these natural miracles, where Jesus doesn't do something with a person, but he does something weird with creation. And so in this scene, it's quite simple. I mean, you know the story at this point. They're in the boat. The reason they're in the boat, because there's too many people, and Jesus says, give me your boat. He's not running away. He's getting out just a little bit, so the acoustics are better, so that he can teach. Isn't Jesus lovely and smart? It's also God. Um, so he gets that. But nevertheless, this is the scene. And then when he's finished teaching, uh, he turns to Simon and says, why don't we go out a little further and put your nets out? Now, this is the daytime, so they've come in from a long night of fishing. And again, Simon is just in his great Middle Eastern passive-aggressive way saying, okay, fine, but stay in your lane, but okay, fine. We've tried this already. We haven't caught anything. Now, don't think of Simon, James, and John as poor fishermen. They have their own company. They're more middle class than some of these other people that we read about in the Bible. So they know their work. They know their profession. And don't you love it when people who don't do what you do tell you how to do what you do? <laughs> Are you with me? Is that an amen? Is that what that is? Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. Uh, the sign of maturity is that when you just... Smile more, you know, instead of tell them, you don't have any idea. But that's, I'm still at that stage. You have no idea. But, um, so I'm working towards that. But this is what's happening. Jesus says, well, let's go do this. You didn't do it right. And so they go out into the water and they do this thing. And then, of course, there's this miracle of the great catch. And uh, the rest is history. And what I want you to notice as we move through this for a few minutes is that Simon goes from doubt to faith to doubt. From, faith, from doubt to faith or belief to doubt. 
I don't know what kind of church he grew up in, but mostly we just stop at the, he went from doubt to faith. Shouldn't you be like Simon? But those are people who don't keep reading. Faith and doubt have often been seen as opposites. Um, if you are a person of faith, then you have conquered doubt. Yay! But if you are a person of doubt and skepticism, and distrust, then you are struggling to be a faithful person. That's how we sort of cast those two things. Faith is over here, doubt is over here, and they go in different directions. God is on the faith side, and everything else is on the doubt side. And so depending on where you are in your life, if you're in great doubt about faith, about issues of faith, then you're going the opposite direction. This is how we cast these two things. But what's interesting is that the Bible deals with faith and doubt quite a bit. And uh, from both the Old and New Testament, we see God interacting with people who deal with both. But there's never this sense in which they're separated. Faith and doubt, at least in the Christian tradition, are not opposites, but they're partners. These two things work together to help us progress in our relationship with God. We're not born into this world as people of great, like we just don't trust everything. There are doubts that we have, and a doubt is a thing that helps us be careful. A doubt is a thing that helps us answer questions or ask questions, the right questions. Doubt is truly the beginning of faith. It is an engine of faith. Without doubt, we don't question things that we've always been told. Without doubt, we don't seek answers. We don't seek deeper answers. Without doubt, we don't, we don't progress. We don't grow. Now, you may be thinking, yes, but my grandmother was a person of faith, and she never doubted. It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Um, or, I'm a person of faith, and I, doubt is not a thing for me. You are a liar. <laughs> Let me just say that. All of us have these experiences where our faith is tested and we fall into seasons of doubt. So how do we work through doubt? Well, there's two kinds of doubt. There's precise or acute doubt. Like this has to do with, I don't really know what to do with the story of Jonah and the whale. That's an acute doubt. And who does, really? But... <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't want to flex, okay? <laughs> but, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Or I don't know what to do with um, all of Genesis. Or I don't know what to do with this one story. I don't know what to do with the resurrection. I don't know what to do with that. Those are acute little things. And the way you deal with those things... Um, are simply that you begin to ask, you ask questions, you seek answers, you talk to people who maybe know more than you, or you read. You do not Google. Do not Google. Uh, you know, the precise doubts that we have, they, they drive us into these, like, we're going to do some research and talk and to figure things out. That's what you do. Um, but there, there's this other kind of doubt, this kind of generalized, uh, dull pain 
that doesn't go away kind of doubt. And it can be the product of, um, it's not necessarily about one story in the Bible or some issue of theology or whatever, but it's just this general base note of, I'm just not really sure of any of it. Are you with me on that? It's a different kind of doubt. Sometimes I'll be speaking with people about their doubts, and it, it starts as a precise issue, like I don't know what to do with this one thing, but then you, you can start to feel that this isn't really about that. This is about something else. This is about I'm just having an existential crisis of faith. And so I think this story drives us to that kind of doubt. Simon already knows Jesus. This is not the first time Jesus meets Simon. Um, the Middle Eastern ancient culture was very, very polite. You don't just take someone's boat. You don't just commandeer someone's boat. But this story is not one of, uh, this isn't the first time Jesus met Simon. This is not, there's, there's already a relationship here. And whatever he said in the sermon, we don't know. Luke classically doesn't tell us. But something is going on for Jesus to challenge uh, Simon to go out into the water and to put down his net. So maybe what we are finding, or at least we can guess, is that Simon has a deep-seated, sort of dull, he's not quite sure what to do with Jesus. He'll say in a moment that he's a sinner. This, is, this, this particular phrase is not necessarily about doing wrong things. It's about not being religious enough. He can't make it to the temple enough. Maybe you feel that way sometimes, you know, uh, that you can't be involved. Whatever doubts that Peter had, Simon Peter had, about Jesus' message or about this whole thing, Jesus re responds by asking Peter to do something, to physically do something, particularly to throw nets over the water, into the water. Now, I don't know why Jesus chose this miracle. Uh, Peter is, Simon Peter is a fisherman. James and John are fishermen. He's calling them to be his disciples, his apprentices. They have families. Maybe this is an advance. You know, maybe Jesus is thinking, you're going to be spending less time in the water now that you're with me. So here's an enormous catch of fish to supply your family with needs for a while. I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us, but that's a good guess. At the same time, it's still just amazing it's an amazing occurrence that takes place. But it all happens because Jesus tells Peter not to have faith or more faith, but to do something. To throw the nets into the water. And I found that working through doubt, not the precise kind, but the general, I'm just in this season of doubt. I have found, at least for myself and others as well, that to move through that is behavioral. It's not necessarily intellectual. Intellectual can only get you so far. We have a number of people in this church with advanced degrees in theology and Bible. Myself, Kyle's working downstairs, Joel's got a Master's of Divinity. Um, and you can vouch for this, it's not enough, is it? It's not enough. We, we were doing some really heavy reading among our elder team and our elder team this past fall, and I was sending them articles and whatever. And, um, you know, they would text me and say, now I'm more confused. And I was like, now you're getting there. 
having all the material doesn't necessarily make it easier. It's not enough. And so what we're left with is, what do we do? Are there things that we can do? It's not enough to know that rarely anybody dies bungee jumping. It's not enough to know that rarely anybody falls while repelling. It's not enough to know that X, Y, and Z about God and Jesus and faith. and it does, Knowing those things just sometimes doesn't matter. Sometimes what God wants us to do is just throw the nets over. Just do something. Do something that pushes this story forward. Are you with me on that? Just take a step. Faith is in the steps, not in the thoughts, not in the things that we know. Faith is in the physical movement of what we do with what we know. Or at least what we think we know, or what we maybe don't know, but we do it. And that's the way it works. Is that working through doubt, engaging with doubt, is sometimes so physical that we just do it. Uh, English philosopher and theologian Francis Spufford, great name. Uh, Let me read this lengthy passage uh, from a book. Um, He says, you never stop doubting, how could you? But you learn to live with doubt in faith unresolved. So you don't keep digging the uh, so you don't keep digging the relationship up to see how its roots are doing. You may have a crisis of faith, but you don't, on the whole, ask for it to account itself philosophically from first principles every morning, any more than you subject your relations, your relationships with your significant other, to daily cost-benefit analysis. You accept it as one of the givens in your life. You learn from it the slow rewards of fidelity. Great phrase. Just the slow rewards of fidelity. You watch as the repetition of Christmases and Easter's. You learn from it through the births and the deaths and the resurrections. Scratches on the linear time of your life a rough little model of his permanence. You discover that repetition itself, curiously, is not the enemy of spontaneity, but it may even be its enabler. Saying the same prayers again and again, pacing your body again and again through a set of movements of faith, somehow helps keep the door ajar through which he may come. The words may strike you as ecclesiastical blah, 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 nine times out of ten, or ninety-nine times in a hundred, and then be transformed and then have a huge fresh wind blowing through them into your closed little room. And meanwhile, you make faith your vantage point, your habitual place to stand, and you get used to the way the human landscape looks from there, reoriented, reorganized, and different. I think one of the struggles we have when we are in seasons of doubt and being unsure is that we assume that is the opposite of where God wants us to be. And if we go into doubt, doubtful seasons with this belief that this is not where God wants me, then we've already sort of fallen into this us and them, even with God. It's funny how binary we are. It's funny how we think that we're beyond that, but when we fall into this, we figure that, oh, because I'm doubting, something isn't true. But it's often in my experience that doubt leads me to truth. And that doubt leads me to the places where I can be faithful again. In one of our readings today, and I'll close with this, 1 Corinthians 15, it's, it's the resurrection text of Paul. It is because Paul wrote 
his letters well before the Gospels were written. It is, in fact, the oldest resurrection text that we have in history. And I want to just read you what he says here in chapter 15. He says, uh, Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. That's the guy who owns the boat, Simon. Lots of name changes in the Bible. He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Implication, go talk to them, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the beginning of this resurrection text, Paul just says, Gee, it's very physical, isn't it? And the reason for that is, leading up to this, it's all been about, quote, the body of Christ, what it means to be a part of the church. And then he makes a shift and talks about the physical resurrection of Jesus. And again, it's, it's one of these things that the Bible does through and through it, especially the New Testament, is that it tries to prove that God is not an idea, but He came as a person. So much of the, uh, so much of the, uh, the tone in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, is to talk about the physicality of Jesus. And the resurrection was not an idea, but a thing that took place. And that people saw Him and that people touched Jesus. And I think that's because faith is not just simply something that we think about, but it's something that we do. It's something that's going to blow up behind me. (laughs) Does that make sense? That when the Bible talks about somehow trying to... uh, Is that your aunt? Way to go, man. Matt Kukin, everybody. Matt Kukin. So, for those of you who are visiting, this is kind of normal. Um, Yes. That's good. That's good. I think we ought to wrap this up. Let me close this down because I'm not sure where I'm at anymore. Uh, Application. Um, there are times that you will find yourself in seasons of great doubt. Um, When those doubts are precise, then seek out those answers. Seek out the intellectual stuff that you need. When those seasons of doubt are just dull pain underneath the surface, don't sit still. Continue to do the things that we do. Continue to say the prayers. Continue to take communion. Continue to serve the poor. Continue to be the people that you know God calls people to be. Because you're not on the opposite end of something. You're just in the middle of something. And faith is often born of great doubt. And it's important for us to remember that. That sometimes Jesus doesn't need us just to believe something. He needs us to take our nets and throw them in the water.